Well, this evening we're turning to Psalm 65, please, the 65th Psalm. And welcome you all here this night, tonight, and for those who are watching online as well. So Psalm 65, and we'll read all this psalm together, and then look to the Lord once again. So let's hear the word of the Lord. Praise waiteth for thee, O God, in Zion, and unto thee shall the vow be performed. O thou that hearest prayer, unto thee shall all flesh come. Iniquities prevail against me, as for our transgressions, thou shalt purge them away. Blessed is the man whom thou choosest, and causest to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. We shall be satisfied with thy goodness, uh, the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. By terrible things in righteousness wilt thou answer us, O God of our salvation, who art the confidence of all the ends of the earth and of them that are afar off upon the sea, which by his strength set afast the mountains, being girded with power, which stilleth the noise of the seas, the noise of their waves, and the tumult of the people." They also that dwell in the uttermost parts are afraid at thy tokens. Thou makest the outgoings of the morning and evening to rejoice. Thou visitest the earth and waterest it. Thou greatly enrichest it with the river of God which is full of water. Thou preparest them corn when thou hast so provided for it. Thou waterest the ridges thereof abundantly. Thou settlest the furrows thereof. Thou makest it soft with showers. Thou blessest the springing thereof. Thou crownest the year with thy goodness, and thy paths drop fatness. And they drop upon the pastures of the wilderness, and the little hills rejoice on every side. The pastures are clothed with flocks. The valleys also are covered over with corn. They shout for joy. They also sing. Amen. Uh, we trust the Lord will bless the reading of His Word to our hearts. Let's just... Uh, once again, look to the Lord and pray that the Lord will bless us as we gather around His Word and His truth. Eternal God and gracious Father, we thank Thee we have a God we can stay our souls upon. Thou art the immutable God, uh, the one who is the rock of ages. And we come to Thee, O our, our God, Thou who art unchanging and unchangeable. We, O God, come to Thee, creatures of time, how changeable we are. Lord, even in our love and devotion to Thee. And yet, Lord, we thank Thee that Thy love, it never waxes nor wanes. Because Thou hast loved us with an everlasting love. Lord, I come to Thee and I pray that Thou would help. I pray that You would wash me in the precious blood, confessing my sin to Thee. Lord, if we say we have no sin, well then, Lord, we make Thee a liar. And the truth is not in us. And Lord, we're conscious of our own sins. And there's many more besides that we're not aware of. But we pray for that cleansing. And I pray, O God, that Thou would fill me with the Spirit. And the Word that Thou hast given, I pray that I will not stand in the way of that Word. But Lord, that You would use me as a vessel and speak to Your dear people. And Lord, may it be a word in season to their hearts. Hear prayer, bring glory to Christ. For this I asked in the Savior's precious and His lovely name. Amen. Now we see from the title of the psalm that it was a psalm that was written by David. It was given to the chief musician. 
more than likely to be set to appropriate music and to be under his direction for public worship. Now, there are those who say that David did not write this psalm, that it was only really ascribed to him. And they take that from the reference that we have there in verse 4 when it speaks of thy holy temple, the temple not being built in David's day. But that's really, well, that's just picking at the details, you might say. This is David's psalm. And that phrase there, the holy temple, does not preclude David from thinking uh, or writing with the temple with future generations and future days in mind. I believe that David, he wanted to leave behind a song that could be sung in public worship at some of the major festivals or feasts that the Lord had instituted. And looking at this psalm, it would seem to have been intended to be sung uh, for or at the Day of Atonement, which was followed by the Feast of the Tabernacles. It was a song to be sung when the people were getting ready to gather in the grain harvest. Now, there doesn't seem to be any particular circumstances. Many of the Psalms are written out of circumstances, but merely from David's contemplation of God himself. And it's a psalm that can be divided up into three stanzas. In verses 1 to 4, we have the grace of God. In verses 5 to 8, we have the greatness of God. And in verses 9 to 13, we have the goodness of God. In the opening four verses, we see God's grace. We read there that God is the one unto whom all flesh shall come. And the context is, of course, to worship, come to worship. Therefore, all flesh, it does not mean all men without exception, for we know that well, there's many men who do not worship God. But this uh, phrase it is one that tells us that all men, it speaks of all sorts of men. All types of individuals from all nations, of every rank, of every degree, of every condition and every circumstance. However, there is a problem for all men that will come to worship God. And that is the interposing sins, iniquities and transgressions that prevail against us, that are so numerous, they testify against us, we cannot bear up underneath them, as it tells us in verse 3. But in grace, God is the one who purges our sin away. As we're told at the end of verse 3, thou shalt purge them away. And that word purge is often translated in the Old Testament as atone. And that's why the suggestion is made that this was a, a song to be sung at the Day of Atonement, which was followed by the Feast of the Tabernacles around the time of the grain harvests. See, those whom God has chosen for himself are by nature, they're at a distance from him because of their sin. And yet through the atonement made by Christ, through that purging, they are brought nigh unto God. Christ, of course, is the blessed man whom God has chosen, and it's by and it's through him that we make our approach to God. So in verses 1 to 4, we have the grace of God. Then in verses 5 to 8, we have God's greatness, especially God's power as it's revealed in nature. We have that wonderful statement there at the end of verse 8. Thou makest the outgoings of the morning and the evening to rejoice. Much splendor there is in the sunrise and sunset, the vivid colors joyfully testifying to God's eternal power and 
his Godhead. And we're told in Psalm 19 verse 1 that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. But this evening it's upon the third stanza in which we see God's goodness that I want to focus our attention. William Scroggie, he called verses 9 to 13 the most perfect harvest song ever written. And since this is the time of the year uh, that we're in the harvest season, well then it's appropriate for us to consider these words tonight. And in these verses, we have the goodness of God manifested by His provision for our temporal needs. He causes the crops to grow and the fields to be filled with flocks. He is the one who has ordered His creation and established what we might call natural laws in order that seed time and harvest do not cease. And we benefit from, from His goodness. But it's the words really in the middle of verse 9 where it tells us there, the river of God which is full of water, well, that, I, that I have based uh, the title of my message on this evening. Those words, I have to say, they've really blessed my own soul. And I want us to read them without the supplied word which by the translators. And it's a wonderful phrase. And I want you to get a hold of this tonight. When it tells us there, the river of God is full of water. The river of God is full of water. Underline that in your Bible. And I have, I have entitled my message this evening, God's river is still full. God's river is still full. Now, the first thing I want us to consider is the visiting. The visiting. Verse 9 opens with the words, Thou visitest the earth. Now, before I get to that point, the visiting and those words in particular, it's interesting to note how many times the pronoun thou appears in this last section. Thou visitest, thou greatly enrichest, thou preparest, thou hast so provided, thou waterest, thou settlest, thou makest, thou blessest, thou crownest. Nine times in three verses, the pronoun thou is connected to a verb, a doing word. And those verbs are in the present tense. You see, this is something that God is continually doing. Not something that He has done for one year or has done at one time, but it's something that God is continually doing. It's something that He is doing moment by moment. Our God is a doing God. He is an active God. He neither slumbers nor He does not sleep. And that's a comfort for us. You see, here we have the truth of the direct action of God and all the natural processes around us, especially in the harvest of the grain and the increase of the flock. You see, God is a God who is interested, who is imminent, and who is involved in His creation. He is not the distant, remote, removed watchmaker that made everything at the beginning, wound it up, and then let it get on with itself. No, God orders all things after the counsel of His will. And He brings all things to pass, including those processes and systems that we see in the world around us. 
And that fact is seen in those words, Thou visitest the earth. It is the great God, the one who is full of grace, mentioned in the previous verses, who is said to visit the earth. Now, the Hebrew word visit, it includes in the positive sense to look upon, to take note of, with the view to take care of. But it's also used in the, the negative sense in the Old Testament, where God looks upon, God takes note of, with a view to punish. We read of, in the Scripture of God both visiting in mercy and in judgment. And here it is obviously a visitation of mercy, for His goodness is seen in that He tends to His creation, which in turns provides for us. Albert Barnes said of this, God seems to come down that he may attend to the wants of the earth, survey the condition of things, arrange for the welfare of the world that he has made. Brethren and sisters, if he tends and attends and visits his own creation, and cares for it, how much more will he not attend to the wants of his children, to you and to me? Now, the greatest incident of God visiting the earth is, of course, the incarnation. When the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, he spoke of this in Luke chapter 1 and the verse 68. We read this, Blessed be the God of Israel, for He hath visited and redeemed His people. And then on down in verse 78, he says, Through the tender mercy of God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. And of course, that's all in relation to the Christ child that Mary would bring forth. Our God is a God who has stepped into history. He has visited us in the person of His dear Son. He looked and He beheld there was no intercessor. He saw us in our great need and in our want. And He took note of it. He wasn't ignorant to it or turned a blind eye to it. But He came after taking note. He came in order that He might relieve us and help us and deliver us and care for us and bring great benefit to us. He came in the incarnation, but He has come. And He has visited each one of us personally and applied to us the merits of redemption. And we have to humbly say with David, What is man that thou art mindful of him or the son of man that thou visitest him? He was mindful of us. He was mindful of you, child of God. And He paid a visit to your soul, the God of heaven. As we read in those opening verses before verses 9 to 13, the gracious God, the great God, in goodness He came and He visited your soul. The biblical record is full, it's full of accounts. When the Lord visited His people, individuals, but also them as a group, as a whole, as you know, a wonderful illustration of the Lord visiting the earth, in a manner in which we read here in Psalm 65 and verse 9, it's found in Ruth chapter 1. 
Remember Naomi? She's away in Moab, out of the will of God. But she heard, she heard that the Lord had visited his people in giving them bread. He sent the rains to water the earth to provide the corn to end the famine. The first mention of visit in the Bible is found in Genesis 21 and verse 1. You can turn there to keep your mind active. Genesis 21, after a long day, maybe out working, it's easy to let the heaviness drip down. But Genesis 21 and the verse 1, here's the first mention of this word, visit, this Hebrew word. It tells us there, and the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah as he had spoken. And there we see that the Lord visited Sarah on the grounds of a promise, of a covenant. And that truth is also seen at the end of the book of Genesis. Before Joseph died, what did he tell his family? What did he tell the children of Israel? He said that God would, what? He would visit them. Genesis 50 in the verses 24 and 25. Read this, and Joseph said unto his brethren, I die, and God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land unto the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones from thence. And then in Exodus chapter 3, we find the fulfillment of that promise. For in verse 16, the Lord tells Moses to tell the people that I have visited them. I have seen all that's happened to them. I have taken note and I have come now for their care, for their benefit, for their relief. God visited his people on the basis of a covenant and he still does. He still does for he has not only intervened throughout biblical history, but he has visited his people in subsequent church history. I've already mentioned he's visited you and me personally. He's done that. But every revival and subsequent awakening is a result of God visiting his people and it's on the basis of the atonement. On the basis of the covenant. Christ has purchased for His church seasons of visitation when God will come to their relief. And personally speaking, I don't know about you, but I need a fresh visitation from the Lord. Collectively speaking, we need, we need the Lord to visit and do for us spiritually what we read and have outlined for us here physically in this harvest hymn, that God would come to do these things. We need to take up the prayer of Psalm 80, verse 15. Return. We beseech thee, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and behold, visit this vine. A visitation of mercy. Why? Because the hedges are broken down. The boar and the wild beasts of the field are coming in to plunder and devour the church. And we need a visitation of our God. An intervention. And thankfully, we have a God who visits the earth. He visits the earth. So there is the visiting. 
Well, secondly, tonight, the watering. It tells us there, thou, thou visitest the earth. Verse 9, Psalm 65 again. Thou visitest the earth and waterest it. Now, David, by composing this song, was making sure that the people thank God, that when they thank God for all the fruits of the past year, the vine, the olive, the barley, and the wheat, that they did not forget to give thanks for the gift of God's rain, apart from which none of the crops would have grown. And as we know, the crops are dependent on rain. God has established the water cycle, and that includes those processes of precipitation, collection, evaporation, and condensation. And He has done that, and by that, He continually waters the earth. Now that cycle is something that he revealed in the Word of God long before man discovered it. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, in the verse 7, we read, All the rivers run into the sea. There's collection. Yet the sea is not full. There's evaporation. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. Condensation, precipitation. There it is. The water cycle is established by God. And yet we must not think that because He's done this, He takes a hands-off approach. It's not true, for He's the one who sends the rain upon the just and the unjust. He is the one who can shut up heaven and withhold the rain so that the earth does not bring forth her fruits. Therefore, we ought to acknowledge God and His goodness when He sends the rain. And the crops and the harvest come forth. And when the rain comes, it refreshes, it nourishes the ground. It has all our effects too. That we're told there in verse 10. It like settles the earth. It softens the rough and the hard ground. It makes our conditions conducive to growth. It's a supply that the earth cannot go without. And that supply just keeps on coming in the physical realm. Think of how many times it's rained upon the earth, and yet the river of God is still full of water. The showers and the rain still fall from His heavens. Now, spiritually speaking, there's a supply that we as Christians cannot do without. It's the supply of God's grace. And in Psalm 46, verse 4, there is mention of this supply for the people of God in, in figurative language. Psalm 46 and verse 4, well-known psalm. But it tells us there, there is a river. The streams whereof shall make glad the city of, of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the most now it's thought that the psalmist had in his mind a river of Kidron and its two streams or rivulets which flowed from it Gion or Shiloh or sorry Shiloh sorry I should say and those little streamlets were said to go gently as it tells us in Isaiah 8 verse 6 
And that's in contrast to the raging and the foaming sea that we read in verse 3 of Psalm 46. Now we learn from 2 Chronicles 32 in the verse 30 that King Hezekiah, he embarked on a project to divert the stream, the rivulet of Gion, that it might supply the great city of Zion that he might bring a water course through that city, and he did that. And that meant the city had a secret supply of water that a besieging enemy could not touch. And you and I, we have a supply of God's grace, which the enemy cannot touch. The river of God's grace, it still flows for us today, and it still supplies us with the daily sufficient grace for all that we have to face Spurgeon said of Psalm 46 in the verse 4, Divine grace like a smoothly flowing, fertilizing, full and never failing river yields refreshment and consolation to believers. Happy are they who know from their own experience that there is such a river of God. And the wonderful thing is that the river of God is not only still flowing, but it's still full. And that river of God, we're told in Revelation 22, verse 1, it flows from the throne of God and the Lamb. And that teaches us that grace flows to us day and daily because of the work of the Lamb. And what He has done for us, He is the rock that has been smitten from which the waters of grace flow out to us every day. How many times have the different saints throughout all the ages. How many times have they not drew in the supply of God's grace? They had the Lord visit them and refresh their souls and water their spirits, and yet, yet the river of God is full. It's full. The grace of God is as abundant today as it was yesterday. It has not been diminished, though He has poured it out upon us time and time again. No, it will not become like Cherith's brook, that dried up before the Lord's servant as He drew daily supplies from it. Dear believer, and I know there are many here, and you have a heavy burden to bear. And thus far you have proved the grace of God. But I want you to be blessed through these words in Psalm 65 and verse 9. The river of God is full of water. It's full of water. There's a vast supply. There is a river that never shall run dry, as the hymn writer put it. I want you to get a hold of that tonight. Get that phrase within your heart. The river of God is full of water. It's full. Child of God, you maybe feel barren and dry. You make sure there's no sin that is shutting up heaven against you. And cry to God to rain His grace into your soul. For the river of God is still full. It's still full and it's still flowing today. Our land, of course, it's barren and dry. But the river of God's still full of water. 
And he can cause streams to flow in the desert. And we need to take this psalm and turn it into a prayer. And call upon God to visit the earth. To water the earth. To visit our land, our town, to water it. By his grace. So there is the visiting, the watering. And finally, this evening, the enriching. Thou visitest the earth and waterest it. Thou greatly enrichest it with the river of God, which is full of water. I've said it before, I'll say it again. There is nothing. And there is no better watering for plants and vegetables than the rain that falls from heaven. And I read why that is the case. Why is rainwater so good for plants? Well, rainwater is 100% soft water. It doesn't have salt, it doesn't have the minerals, it doesn't have the chemical treatment that we have in our tap water. Rainwater is naturally slightly acidic. And plants, well, I am told, I try to grow them, but I am told they like a pH range of between 5.5 and 6.5. And by God's design, that's exactly where rainwater is. Our tap water, it's more alkaline. Why? Why is it more alkaline? So it doesn't erode the metal pipes. And so God has designed it that way. Rainwater also has nitrates. It contains nitrogen, a macronutrient. And you farmers, you know, you're buying nitrogen in your fertilizer, and that's what pushes the price up. Well, it is the nitrogen that makes your plants green. So it is. It makes plants grow stronger and bigger. And therefore, rainwater is the best for them. The soil is enriched and made rich by grain, and then it yields its riches to man. Now notice that the earth and the plants, they are greatly enriched. Not just enriched, but greatly enriched. And our souls and lives are and have been greatly enriched by the goodness of our God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, we read that in everything, everything ye are enriched by Him. How impoverished we were by nature, bankrupt spiritually, covered with the beggarly rags of our sins. But he's visited us. He's poured grace into our souls. And now we know the riches of his grace. We have a righteousness imputed to us that's beyond price. We're heirs of God. We're joint heirs of Jesus Christ. How greatly we were enriched by the one described in Ezekiel 34. And verse 26, the one who is the shower that would come down in a season how we have been enriched by our God, but how we continually in our lives and through our lives by His goodness and His grace are enriched day and daily, greatly enriched. See, child of God, we know an enrichment that the world knows nothing of. That secret supply of grace that flows into our soul, we are enriched by His presence, by His love, by His wisdom, by His counsel, by His guidance, by His comfort, by His strength, and so on. What an enrichment we have in our lives. 
verse 9, we see, we see that the corn grows when the Lord has provided for it in such a way by sending the rain. So too, as He greatly enriches us, with His grace and His goodness, He does it in order that you and I might grow, that we might be productive and bring forth fruit to His glory. Verses 9 to 13. They are testament to the goodness of God. And the natural processes and systems and cycles that we have around us, from which we get our food, well, they are themselves a witness to the goodness of God. We read in Acts chapter 14 and verse 17. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness. And that he did good, and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. But natural, sinful man, he doesn't take note of that witness. He doesn't lay it to heart, and therefore he is unthankful. He doesn't acknowledge that his daily mercies and common grace, it all comes from God by his ordering, by his visiting, by his watering, by his enriching. But we are the children of the Lord. We ought to give thanks to the one who visit, visiteth the earth. And waterest it. And greatly enriched it. With the river of God. Which is full of water. He's provided for our temporal needs. And he has provided for our spiritual needs. Brethren and sisters, the river of God is still full. It still flows, and you will never exhaust its supply, though you carry a heavy burden. His grace is sufficient for you. May we know a time of visitation, a time of watering, a time of of enrich, enriching. It's good to know that the river of God is still full. May the Lord bless His Word to our hearts, and I trust that that little phrase just in the middle will bless your own soul, and you'll continually draw from God's vast supply. We'll bow in prayer before we sing a hymn, and then Reverend Greer will come and make some announcements. So let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Father, we do thank and bless Thee for Thy grace that flows like a river. We thank Thee, O God, there is a vast supply. We thank Thee for, Lord, watering our souls, enriching our lives. We thank Thee for the great visitation of the Son of God when He came to earth. But we cry to Thee, Lord, we're in desperate need. Our own souls need a fresh visitation, need a watering, need an enriching. O oh God, what Thou dost day and daily, month by month and year by year in the temporal, physical world, do it in our souls, we ask of Thee. O oh, visit us, vine, visit us in mercy. Lord, come, O oh God, we pray. Lord, we read on down about 
the softening of the ground. How many hearts are hard. Oh, for grace to be poured out upon us, upon this town, Lord. And Lord, you have said there, you blessed, blessest the springing thereof. Oh, that thou would cause the good seed of the word that has been sown in many, many hearts to spring forth into life. That thou, God, would furnish the fields with crops and flocks, O God, we ask of thee for the glory of thy great name. Lord, hear our prayer and help us later on as we get down to pray. For this we ask in Jesus' precious and his worthy name. Amen.